0: As I was going up the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today, and oh, how I wish he'd go away. When I came home last night at three, the man was waiting there for me, but when I looked around the hall, I couldn't see him there at all. Go away, go away, don't you come back any more? Go away, go away. And please don't slam the door. Last night I saw upon the stair a little man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away.
1: Nice. At the signal, time will be out of joint.
0: Hello and welcome to the very first Halloween episode of Weird Signal, which also coincides with the very first meeting we had with our erstwhile comrade Adam about doing a hauntology and folk horror podcast. We'll get you on here one day, Adam, don't worry. (laughs) Uh, I'm Sean and joining me as ever, as ever, is Lucy (laughs) for an extra spooky episode of Weird Signal. Uh, you remember how this is nominally a podcast about philosophy and critical theory, whereby we talk about those elements in films. We're, we're talking about ghosts in this one. This is this is our this is the fun one. This is the Halloween fun one.
1: And our theme, our essay subject is Halloween. Woo! And we've decided to be dicks about it <laughs> right from the <laughs> outset. Lucy
0: has decided we're going to be dicks about it. Yes,
1: because <laughs> rather than look into the history of Halloween, as I'm sure many podcasts. have The approach I wanted to take was to look at Halloween now as it exists as an entity and extrapolate backwards um, and not necessarily be guided by any conception that this has some sort of literal or even thematic or supernatural root in an actual pagan holiday or period of the year where um, a literal phenomenal event happens. Because if you look at the history of Halloween, it's it's very hard to get from that to what it is now. Um, And when I was um, researching around the subject, I I kind of... I I tried to trace the beginnings of what we saw, what became Halloween now, as this kind of strange, uh, hedonistic, drunken, sort of adorable, sort of quirky, sort of um, strange, but also hyper-capitalist and like haunted in a very literal and um weird signal sense um basically the take i wanted to put is halloween is itself a hyperstitional holiday um and it was um the product of um adopted folkloric traditions getting merged and fragmented and denaturalized into something that was an entirely Strange sui generis um, entity. The and you know it's it's useful to think about it in the same way one the same way one talks about the 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 invention of Christmas, uh, which I believe was a Radio Four special some years ago. Uh, where there's there's odd things like um, or the fact that Christmas has taken on such weight in the popular imagination, even though it's kind of Sean am I right in thinking it's kind of ultimately secondary in importance to Easter? but it's it's the, Yes, it it's is. It's the one that it's the one that people really give a shit about. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: yeah yeah.
1: Yeah. If they if they make it you know, if people make it to church for Easter, those people will probably make it to church for Hello for, for, for in, Christmas, but not the other way around. In the yeah, in the Catholic tradition, uh you expected to get
0: you, you I mean you expected to go to Mass every Sunday, uh if not more, but at the very, very least you have to. You have to go at least once a year at Easter. So that's mm. that's the absolute minimum, yes.
1: Yes. Um but getting down to brass tacks, so Somewhere, Samhain, I believe it's pronounced, or Sam Hain, as I prefer, because that seems to be how the legendary Danzig project Sam Hain said it. <laughs> um, November coming fire, solid album um, is a ancient and tri- specifically European tradition, whereas Halloween is um, categorically an American tradition. Um, the and it's interesting, kind of the the manifestation of Halloween that we have seems to come out of like the nineteenth century through the um, sort of almost like kind of de- denatured, decontextualized adoption or the carryover of kind of Scottish and Irish um, trickeries around this time of year, which uh, kind of, I suppose uh, closer to what we might think of as devil's night, the night before Halloween as depicted in the crow, which I'm sure is a thing outside of that film um, <laughs> where it was far more tricking than treating um, as one article I read researching for this. Uh, so blithely put it, but basically um, Halloween was um, was kind of, I guess, in if we're thinking about it in traditions at all, closer to the Feast of Fools, to the Saturnalia, um, where we um, the kind of the the strangeness of it comes from a very figurative upending of social mores. Um, so it, it, the Saturnalia, or you know, the Feast of Fools, which um, coincided with the ancient Saturnalia, uh, has um, has the sense where. It's it's that idea of being king for a day or inverting the social order and there's a lot of myth-making and speculation about how much this actually happened, but it's kind of... It was a sort of strange public ritual which um, seemed to, you know, like many strange public rituals, while subverting the natural order was a um, backwards kind of enforcement of sexual, said natural order. Um, and Halloween seems to have spun off from that. Um, and when the... Where the occult creeps in, I'm sure, has a sort of a collective memory rather than an active tradition of um, this idea of another inversion, which is natural order in the um, in the in the philosophical sense, in the, in the in the in the in the in the in what we might consider natural order, the order to the cosmos. Um, by by dint of that, the uh, exposure to the supernatural, what people call the thinning of the veil between this world and the next. Um, uh, but when we're thinking about um, Halloween, Halloween, the concept. Now, uh, I would, I would postulate that came together somewhere in the last 200 years. It's hard to say when, Um, but what we have, the modern incarnation comes from a, um, what seems to be a very uh, considered a very deliberate top down approach to make it into a children's holiday. Um, to associate it uh, inexor- inexorably with childhood, whereas before it had been something of a drunken adult holiday, in the same way that people made uh, Christmas into the thing that focuses on children, uh, which displaced all the drinking to New Year's. Um Although, you know, everyone's going to do both.
0: <laughs> well, kind of that, that kind of fades away as the kids grow up. I mean, sort of like Christmas with my family now is just sort of like we all see, let me just try and function at like a relative low level of drunkenness for the whole day. It's great. <laughs> But, but the best Christmas I ever had was just sort of when my dad had flu and I just watched all of the first season of Game of Thrones while well off of my head on ginger wine and eating um, smoked salmon. It was mm. one of the happiest days of my life.
1: And so, yeah, so what's interesting there is um, the the these kind of concerted efforts to make it into a children's event uh, crucially arise out of the two most... Um, two most conservative decades in American history to date, uh, which is the... Excluding uh, the present. Excluding the present. Well, this is kind of like a... This is a lost history a kind of a lost golden age of terrifying primordial bullshit that never existed um, which I'm sure we can get onto on another episode <laughs> although you know we should never forget that especially at Halloween <clears throat> um, but yeah so um, it was made it, was, um, it arose out in the 1930s, 1950s it was trying to take it away from the adults but this move um, strikes me as quite an interesting one because it this is going back to the idea of it coming out of America and the importing of European traditions and the disarticulation of inter- uh, European traditions that we talked about a bit in our Blair Witch episode. It's, um, it's yes. interesting to think about it actually, because I don't
0: because I don't know much about the history of Halloween. Um, to be honest with you, if we were looking at a um, I don't want to say authentically British because that sounds awful and fascist, but sort of like you know, sort of like a non-American spooky holiday is actually kind of Christmas if you look at. So sort of, you know a lot of the culture around Christmas uh, in uh, in Britain with the the Christmas ghost story, a Christmas Carol is literally a ghost story. There's, yeah. There is the there is the the tradition of a of a ghost story on Christmas Eve,
1: and that's something I wanted to talk about a little more later because it is very interesting that um, that you know we had our homegrown um, ghost story tradition around Christmas, which seems to have shifted normally to Halloween uh, very recently. Um, kind of within the span of things we've talked about on this podcast, because, now you know, uh, calling way back to that first episode about uh, the Stone Tape, that was a ghost story at Christmas. Mm, yes. And, um, and yeah, so, um, but I'm thinking thinking in terms about um, the Americanness ness of it and the relationship to the Blair Witch episode, I wanted to kind of, underst- I kind of understand it as a kind of anti-weird holiday, because America and American folklore and the folk horror that emerges out of America has that kind of, very noticeable strain of um, encountering this vast, uncontrollable, unknowable, seemingly ahistorical land, or, you know, ah- ahistorical to the people perceiving it then. Um, ahistorical ah, to the people who've only just turned up. Yes, yes basically. Um, and trying to um, turn it into something familiar and turn it into something kitsch. So we get the the supernatural, but it's been um, codified into recognisable tropes, uh, which now kind of no- don't even have so much of a link to um, to the, the type of superna- supernatural things we might even associate with that era. So now we've got kind of the classic Halloween costumes among children are witch, vampire, Superman, alien, <laughs> serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, I wanted to go to, as Jim Jones, but Lucy told me that would be a really, really tasteless and bad thing to do. No, Min said that. I said fucking do it but also you do kind of just dress as jim jones most it's not intentional. days i just wear
0: jackets and black shirts all the time and sunglasses and sunglasses and, uh, and i a christian
1: and a communist and then talk that way <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah oh shit no. oh shit i yeah. am jim jones anyway yeah. um actually wait no calling back to jim jones um so um i the kind of kind of secular commie friend that you talk communism to and then behind my back it's like oh yeah by the way that's just a smokescreen it's really god (laughs) (laughs) and will it come together at the aliens who knows but um but yeah it's this codification um it's this attempt to turn it into something that's recognizable as a kind of anti-weirdness and that shines very interestingly with the idea of making it a children's thing because it's like here are these mysterious things that you're allowed to, uh, to access and interact with in a very controlled way and then you forget them as you go into adulthood. Um, that also didn't work in both our cases, and that <laughs> many of our gothy peers. Um, but yeah, because Halloween uh, gen, uh, on, a, on a
0: personal note, listener, Halloween gen is um, did always have an act, uh, did have a genuine uh, like free for me growing up because I wasn't allowed to do Halloween things because I came from a very from a faintly fundamentalist Christian family mm. uh, who believed in the imminent uh, my parents believed in the imminence of the rapture due to those horrible left behind books. Um, <laughs> Which and we will also cover on the podcast. <laughs> wonderful uh, Nicholas Cage film. Wonderful, wonderful Nicholas Cage. Uh yes. Yeah, so no, it was so because, and that's actually that's probably how I just that is genuinely how I got into all of this weird shit because I wasn't allowed to. So it immediately became far cooler than it would have been otherwise. Mm. So Halloween, I remember actually like peering out of my window at Halloween to see the other children in costumes and things. I thought. It'd be spooky It'd be spooky to see People dressed as zombies And vampires And they mm. never were They never were you got to put the lantern out That's right Yeah we Weren't to uh, were to allow the lantern Ah huh, funny I mean, well, We were We just kept it indoors In the fireplace And so now we could see
1: it <laughs> gently rotting outside For the next three months um, but, It's a pity It's a pity we don't Eat pumpkin Because it's great Pumpkin is great. You can only get it at this time of year as well. Same it's with purple bullshit. carrots. America apparently is amazing. You can just buy pumpkin all year round. Oh, let's let's move to America. We get have s- pumpkin. We have like squashes all of the year round, but they're a bit shit. Oh uh, yeah, um, yeah. Um, but basically, um, we're already drifting, yeah. and we're only
0: like twenty minutes into this. That's pretty good. Hmm.
1: Um, but basically, um, so yeah, so Halloween is anti-weird or the concept of Halloween as it's come to us. Okay, is, is you, what do you mean by that? What do anti-weird that? as in it's trying to turn the unfamiliar and codify it into the familiar and say that, no, this is it. This is your one day a year to dress as spooky things. And, um... And it's it's traditional scares, and it's like it's like um, well, I'm going back to that line in Mark Fisher, which I'm sure we've um, we've approached a couple of times already. That um, kind of traditional folkloric horror things, or the things of Gothic or Victorian horror, have that um, have this distinction from the weird, in that um, they are supernatural things, but they're recognizably supernatural in a sense that you know they're. They're deliberately supernatural, and so their horror comes from their unnaturalness. Um, whereas, you know, so vampires and werewolves, they can harm you in a way that's kind of understandable. And also they're threatening because they're an inversion of the real in that way. However, weird is where, um, is the great beyond that, where things are terrifying of their own nature. Um, and they don't have any kind of... Um, they don't have any kind of tradition backing them up to tell you to be terrified of them. They just are existing as this thing for their own sake, or for the, by their own nature. Which, and and, this,
0: and uh, traditional romantic and traditional gothic romantic horror has reached its um, its total inversion by now. But, but With um and this isn't this isn't dunk on Twilight time, but the way that like stuff like Twilight and paranormal romance and so on has rendered them purely as figures of uh, of desire and uh, as ultimately sort of like attractive, understandable forces, which they're kind of not, they're not quite like you and me, but not in any kind of threatening way. And once you get to know them, they're mm. all like really, really sexy boys. And, uh, yeah. and and who doesn't want that really?
1: Yeah. But I think what I, what I found is like, Halloween holds that particular attraction for me because it's got all these things. It's that attempted codification of the unreal of the supernatural, but it hasn't worked. It doesn't feel like it's worked. And if you go out and you're you're entering the coldness of the night and you're looking around the the world as you've not seen it in this way for some years, um, and you approach the beyond in that way, it kind of it has this jarring effect. Um, and I think the best way I can think about it is if we think about that film, The Shining. Um, you know, you get the impression in The Shining right at the end, spoilers, but um, you there's that bit where um, there's there's a kind of very much a powerful profound ancient and vast quality to the horrors that are that are assailing people and it's something very human but it's also something very inhuman. Yes, yeah, so yeah, the
0: conclu- like the uh, the the uh, over the um inescapable conclusion of uh, the shining is that there is actually something f- like it's not ghosts it's something it, it's implying something far stranger and
1: weirder which mm. is why
0: which is why it's one of the best films ever made.
1: But the actual character to the scare in it is one that has a kind of it's defined by a particular flashpoint that happened in the 1920s, outside, like, but is now kind of outside of time. Or the people who en- who have entered into it, or were always meant to enter it, the meant to enter ballroom. into it, like um, the participants in the haunted ballroom and Mr. Torrance himself. Um, that is kind of that. The reason why that's so unsettling is because um, because it's like you've just seen all this shit and you've seen all this weirdness and you get this energy from it, but then suddenly it's just oh a murder in the 1920s but that's it's just not right there's then that's the not rightness that makes it so disturbing and i think kind of halloween has a, a this quality to it and i think i think this is something that's kind of fed into some of the the aesthetic of halloween or the the mythos of halloween that even you know goes against the attempted codification of it i think i mean if we're thinking in terms of uh, literary history um or you know the literary uh, roots of halloween and thematic roots of halloween one of the best stories um one of the great novels of halloween is something wicked this way comes by um shit the name escapes me for just ray a minute bradbury. ray bradbury so uh, I'm, I'm reaching carry on please. okay i uh, me too <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah ray bradbury um because he was interesting because he was um, he was writing about it as this kind of folksy thing and how the, um, the travelling, the sideshowness to it, that kind of American tradition, that being inverted, made it something familiar, but also it carried this air of the interloper. And I think the reason why that, you know, the interloper, these are the out-of-town people, these are the people from beyond the veil and everything's just a bit wrong, like the... I mean, I want to go into this another time, but there's, like, just so many, like, slightly off details about it, as indeed there are about what we're talking about tonight. But, um... I also just wanted to mention,
0: uh, it's actually the same thing that I said with, um, in the Nosferatu episode. A really good Thomas Ligotti kind of take on Halloween, the same way he did a really good take on vampires, is uh, Alice's Last Adventure, which you can get in the so- uh, Song of a Dead Dreamer, which has been... Which was and Grimscribe. And Grimscribe, which was uh, repub- inexplicably republished as a Penguin Classic a few years ago.
1: Inexplicably, in, like, why would such a wonderful thing be blessed upon us that this would happen?
0: Yeah. Uh, so
1: yeah, it's a really good story. You should read it. Yeah, and and then just kind of also Halloween itself has this high, kind of hyperstitional quality to it because because it has this this kind of levity and this freedom of or, of a kind of latitude of interpretation that it can be everything now because it is nothing or you know it's it was it, always fake. It was that's always fake, and and then and that's where we get thing. Then we get like kind of. A literal instance of hyperstition Happening with um, An incident that's now gone down in Halloween Law um, The Rob- Ronald Clark O'Brien murders um, This uh, bit of background There's an excellent um, podcast on this uh, Called Just a Story where they tackle um, Urban legends specifically um, But that was Basically that was a murder That was inspired by an urban legend And then became an actual thing uh, That It was the myth of the poison candy mm. um, Because it's it's one of those things it's like if you put this idea out there it's like oh that would be a really easy thing to do because there are these children just like walking around in the dark eating things out of sacks that you've just given them um (laughs) like what if we murdered them and then someone took it and was like what if i pull a incredibly callous insurance scam with this as indeed ronald clark o'brien did although he's was completely incompetent in how he went about it and like was seen buying the poison and, uh, like, asking about how much poison would it take, you know, to kill maybe a child of eight or nine. And, um, was he buying it at the same time, from the same place as he was buying the candies? Um, quite possibly. <laughs> and uh, the candies, which were pixie sticks, which he just, like, tipped the pixie dust out of and then put the arsenic in and crudely stapled back together on the same day as he took out, like, a vast life insurance policy on a- on his children. If you... That is just... Su- <laughs> I think there's something
0: about taking life insurance out on your children, which immediately means you're going to kill them. Mm. And I think, indeed, if they're taking life insurance out on anybody else, anybody else, it always means, no, you're going to kill them. That's yeah. the only reason anyone's ever taken life insurance out on somebody else. It's like,
1: Jesus, wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he fucked up. Uh, but basically, what this has been a rather rambling essay, and I don't think I have much of a clear thesis on this, because I didn't do a great deal of research. This is kind of patching together from how it appears to me now, And I don't, to be fair though, I don't think there is a great deal of like um, research or people taking this angle already. Um, And perhaps I should be the one to do that. Who knows? This is the fun one. It's Halloween. This is the fun one. But basically, Halloween isn't real and everything is possible. It is a weird sui generis, sui generis, I don't know why I put a hard G, pseudo holiday. And um, that is why tonight we're going to be talking about our very own weird sui generis entity that hit the world in 1992. Watch.
0: The program you are about to watch is a unique live investigation of the supernatural. It contains material which some viewers may find to be disturbing. No creaking gates, no gothic towers, no shutter windows. Yet for the past 10 months this house has been the focus of an astonishing barrage of supernatural activity. Ghostwatch is presented as a live broadcast on Halloween 1992 from a haunted house in Norfolk, Greater London. The family who live there, a mother and her two daughters, have been reporting poltergeist activity and apparitions. The entity has been nicknamed Pipes, as the mother had told her daughters that the strange noises they had heard were just the pipes in the wall. It's presented by Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green and Craig Charles. Parkinson and Charles don't really need to be introduced. Uh, Green was a Blue Peter presenter, a very familiar face on family TV. And it's been emphasized to me by friends of the podcast, Bobsey that who watched it live going out, that it was hella weird seeing the lady from Blue Peter do this thing.
1: Whereas it's it's oddly natural that we would see the guy from Red Dwarf
0: doing (laughs) this thing. Parkinson is in the studio with a parapsychologist, Dr. Lynn Pascoe, with Green and Charles on location. Over the course of the evening, things get weird. The keen-eyed viewer will be able to spot an enigmatic figure with a bloody face appearing in some shots in the background. We learn that the girls have experienced scratches at the hands of the ghost. We also learn that they've heard noises coming from the, <clears throat> glory hole under the stairs, which meant at the time a cupboard under the stairs It didn't mean the thing it means now Or if it did that clearly it, hadn't become transatlantic it yet It definitely meant
1: the thing it, it definitely means definitely
0: did but clearly the BBC weren't aware of that yet
1: Also I think a glory hole it seems to have um, Basically because I work at an art college And I was like proximate to the ceramics and glass department There was like a particular um, function in the glass blowing, blowing process Which involved something called a glory hole It was on the um, technical facilities list huh, Glorious Anyway Things deteriorate as the evening
0: goes on. We learn that a man who lived in the house previously was, an ins- was a mentally disturbed child molester who had killed himself after being driven in- after being driven insane by the ghost of a child murderer named Mother Sedens. Viewers who had been calling the number provided on screen to commentate and share their own ghost stories go from reporting seeing ghostly figures on the television to reporting poltergeist activity in their own homes. Pasco realizes to her horror that they've inadvertently staged a nationwide seance, communicating tremendous power to Pipes and allowing him to, in essence, haunt the entire country. The studio lights explode, the studio falls silent and ends with Parkinson, possessed by the ghost, asking the audience, you didn't believe the story of Mother Sedans, did you? It's difficult to know, even if anybody's still still with us, but if they are, this is the... The scene in this, in this studio, this
1: totally deserted studio, the working round and round the garden like a teddy bear. <laughs>
0: So in order to understand the story of Ghostwatch, we have to put on our deconstruction hats, and look at what was going on outside of and concurrent with the text, with the broadcast. Originally, this was going to be a six-part faux documentary series about a haunted house, culminating in a live transmission. However, eventually, they decided to just go with the live episode, making it feature-length for ninety minutes. And this is the Ghost Watch, as this is Ghost Watch as we know it, written by Stephen Volk, by the horror writer Stephen Volk. The BBC was perhaps, in retrospect, rightly nervous about Ghostwatch and almost pulled it before transmission. And eventually they insisted that it begin with a Screen 1 title card. Screen 1 was their drama block
1: oh. uh, at
0: the time. So they had, so the, and it, this is true of the DVD release as well. It begins with the BBC drama, Studio 1 thing, Screen 1 thing rather. Uh to emphasise that this isn't real, this is make-believe, this is a drama that we've done. I mean, all this information was up on CFAX as well. It was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, however, lots of people didn't tune in at the beginning, and they just see Sarah Green being menaced by a supernatural entity while Mark- Michael Parkinson looks on in uh, impotent horror and, uh, and so on. It's, uh, anyway, it's un- <laughs> it's unclear how many people called up the BBC to complain, uh, inquire, or otherwise comment on the broadcast. Uh, uh, but some estimates place this number at perhaps as many as a million people uh, rang in during this to find out what the hell is going on. Uh, in fact, the idea was, because and like I said, a, num- a number does appear on the screen during Ghostwatch, and this mm. was the standard... BBC number to call in during a TV show When it had uh, a call in thing And the idea, and the and the plan was That people who would call in, they would be Greeted with an automated message, they would say Hello, thank you for enjoying this drama that we've put together We want to assure you that this isn't real But if you have a ghost story you'd like to share Please do so after the tone However, so many people rang up that the Switchboard became jammed, so people Were ringing up the BBC who thought there was a chance This might be real, and they were greeted just with dial tone.
1: And also, if um As the uh, drama heavily implies uh the the supernatural event happening has interfered with technology in some capacity this would be a kind of latent confirmation of this suggestion yeah it would be really scary yeah. <laughs> uh and about about 11
0: million people watch this a lot of people watch this uh, the simple truth of the matter is that a lot of people watch ghost watch and took it exactly as it was intended. It was a horror drama done in a documentary style. And th- there'd been an article in the Radio Times that week where they'd talked about this. They talked about this fake thing that Michael Parkinson had done. Where he pretends to be hosting a live broadcast from a Haunted House. Um, but lots of people were confused and frightened by it. And at least some people... Believed that this was real, that this was they were watching a an actual supernatural event being broadcast to the country, and were frightened by it because it's it's really fucking scary. Mm. Uh, there's a quote from Stephen Falk here. He says, uh, and I, I think he does say this with at least a tiny amount of glee. I think three women who were pregnant went into labour that evening. A vicar phoned in to complain that even though he realised it wasn't real, he thought the BBC had raised demonic forces. It was partly that it scared people, but the complaints were actually more But the BBC had made them feel like mugs. People felt the BBC was something they could trust, and the programme had destroyed that trust. And the British Medical Journal did publish a report which claimed that two children, two young boys, who watched this post watershed halloween horror story just want to throw that out there how it was suffering from tv-induced post-traumatic stress disorder uh, however um there were responses to this art- to this um, article which argued that that was an inappropriate diagnosis they were just two children who watched a really effective piece of horror and they got scared by it and it kind of really occupied them for a few days because that's what happens when you watch something frightening. Mm. It's not but it would not be uh, accurate to call this post traumatic
1: stress disorder. So yeah. But uh, in any case, it's become it has taken on a legendary status and taken on this mantle of of national trauma, which I think is potent, potent grounds for discussion. Because it was um there were
0: rumors that it had been banned. It was never banned, but it has never been shown on British television since, and it was not available in home media for ten years after the initial broadcast. So it diver- so the people who remembered seeing it for a long time, they couldn't access this. This was this, you know, this pre broad access to the internet. Just well just about pre that, and so it becomes a a, a spectral presence in the mm-hmm. nas- in the national character almost. It's this traumatic event that occurred back in the day. Uh, so yes, there you go. Yeah. Uh, my mum watched it while I still r- resided in her womb. There you go. Uh, lovely image for you then. or no They're seeing
1: it now, for God's sake. Don't close the lines. We need to know what's happening out there. You're the
0: expert. What
1: is happening out there? I don't know. We're going to be doing a lot of callbacks to our Blair Witch episode, I think, this this um, episode, just um, for a number of reasons which we're going to go into. but. I think a similar thing in terms of critical response to Ghostwatch has happened where, um, just as um the kind of the hyperstition and the um the mythmaking of the filmmakers and the myth and the um kind of slightly weird, clever advertising um uh, strategies of the Blair Witch project kind of eclipse the fact that it is a go- a good solid horror film. Um I think a lot of the um the craziness that you know, the madness that is the the ghostwatch story has in itself eclipsed the fact that, as well as being a live broadcast of a thing purporting to be a supernatural event, this is way weirder than it needed to be. Mm. Like, um, like I mean, just the I think the key thing here is just the the. The utter nastiness of the pipe story You know, because you could have just had a ghost But it's like, no, this is a ghost Which is the ghost of a Child murderer who was possessed by the ghost Of, like, another child murderer well, He was a child molester a Child molester, possessed by a child murderer and, and, like, her consciousness Is imprinted on his consciousness And there was all this back Because, basically, in the drama um, It holds off this information for a very long time Because they, they do this wonderful ploy Where they talk about how, um the, they've looked into the history of the house and they've not been able to find something that would match the haunting they're seeing there. They're not able to see a kind of recognizable event being reported. Yes, However, because because
0: yeah. the um because uh the guy the guy who becomes the ghost pipes um, wouldn't be they say he wouldn't be on any of the official records because He's, his uncle and aunt who owned the house were illegally subletting a room to him
1: yeah and so we only find out about this this very potent twist much later into the drama when shit's really starting to hit the fan uh, where it's uh, guys saying like no that I was a doctor that I'm not you know breaking patient confidentiality uh, to come out with this information saying like no this was a very disturbed man who should never have been let out into the uh, he should have never have been allowed near a community Yes, and um, and just like the, the the sophistication of that is quite staggering. The the amount of delay, the amount of like the layers it stretches back to. Um, it is kind of uh, I'll go into the later, but it is that broaching between the kind of recognisable weirdness of say a ghost or a haunting with the with the elaborate weirdness that could go way further back than anything we understand. Um, but but as well as that, as well as the the sophistication of the kind of effectively ghost watch mythos that it creates there in that little segment um we get we get some very very dark things like um one thing they have a lot of callers in it's these staged phone calls and also they have video footage of people talking about their own kind of poltergeist experiences and they're all kind of off like, the one about, um, I think there's a woman talking about being in India or something, and then she wakes up to see a oh, woman is Sarah
0: Green. This was oh, the story for Sarah Green. Yeah. So, yeah,
1: and that one's weird. Like, that, that just, like, that's atypical of a haunting. This, that, um, and I can't actually remember what stuck out for me especially, but just, like, the fact that there was just this kind of staring woman and nothing too explicit happened. It was just a conveyance of a feeling. But then there's also the caller who calls in and says, like, yeah, so, like... The comedy Welshman rings in. Oh, yeah, the comedy Welshman, naturally. And it's like, oh, he broke a glass table. No, 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 no,
0: no, no, no. The table exploding happens later. The comedy Welshman... that guy's also Welsh, though. Really isn't. No, 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 no. Okay, comedy Welshman. Comedy Welshman. We shouldn't say comedy Welshman. I
1: think that was actually in the script.
0: But no, because actually he is, like, he is... um that is like he's a bit of comic relief because the welsh are funny apparently Mm. and uh he's just like tells a story of like a haunted sandwich basically and (laughs) parkinson is very very sniffy and
1: dismissive about it we've also got um a guy that calls in talking about how um he was being haunted and it's like, oh, typical poltergeist thing bump in the night, bits of like plates being moved around, drips of water coming through the house and places where there were no leaky pipes. And then it's like, oh yeah, and then we one day we, we found the front door and there was like spit on the door and then another day there was like some, someone had literally smeared shit on the door. And it's like, this is disgusting. Yep, this is. Yep, <laughs> this is um, that's the. I think that's the lip taken because one of the major
0: inspirations for Ghost Watch is the Enfield Poltergeist case. Mm. And, and, and now comes our as uh, as is the case with every episode of, of uh, Weird Signal. Go listen to the last podcast on the left episode about the Enfield podcast. It's really good. Um, the uh, yeah, I think that's where that's it's like from. shit
1: and piss guy. And shit then and piss. there's and, uh,
0: there's uh, a th- woman whose table explodes. Yeah. There's a Welsh guy whose sandwich gets haunted, and he's there for comic relief. But
1: they they also so the seeds of the fact that there is an entity here, but it's also specifically an entity that preys on children um, because um, even before we learn about the child molester status of the, of the ghost source um, it's like something that's definitely kind of coming towards children, you know, a- attracted to um, harming children and can do actual physical harm. We as- see that one of the daughters, the daughter who, uh, uh, the,
0: the elder daughter, Suzanne, uh, we see photographs of her face covered in scratches,
1: yeah. for instance. And there's that implicate. And they kind of play it off at the time saying, oh yeah, she probably did it to herself or was in some sort of possessed state. But like, then we hear the story about, like, they go off into the neighbourhood and they're just like, oh, you, you look like you've got something to say. And it's this guy saying, so, yeah, we were going around the playground. Um, this That's another odd thing in that, like, it can go outside of the house. It yeah, can it go into the neighbourhood. Yeah, it seems to
0: be something that, uh, or it's a malefic aura that's affected the community mm-hmm. as a whole because there's a, a really, like, this is the first indication I think that we're in for something actually genuinely quite dark here where, they, where this one of the women who lives in the estate just says that a dead dog was found and the dog was in the playground and the dog was pregnant and some of the gutted it and scattered the fetuses all over the playground. It's like, holy shit, that's dark.
1: Yeah, and it's like, but this is really early on. It's like, okay, this is taking a bit of a turn. This is one
0: because I think this because um, Ghost Watch is something that because uh, I first learned about Ghost Watch from uh, Charlie Brooker's Screenwipe, mm. where he does a, a fantastic little segment about it. But Ghost Watch is one of those is one of those programs I wish I had see, got seen it, knowing nothing about it going into it, mm. and had just followed it on that journey of escalation where you it starts off quite hokey, quite charming BBC neighbor chummy kind of thing mm-hmm. and then uh, it turns very very slowly and it then it escalates and there's some I watched it again uh last night and there's some there is bits in it. I've seen it I've seen this more than once but I was just watching it on my own and it's it's it is like it, it still chills me. Like this there's, there's a the particular scene that really got to me last night was a because the girl Suzanne gets possessed by the ghost at points and speaks in its voice and there's a shot of her crouching in the corner of the living room next to one of the armchairs, her Mm. face covered in scratches as she just stares at blank hide forwards mouthing the words that this ghost is speaking through her and it's just it's 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 really good yeah and it's really good and, and i see why people were disturbed by and
1: this. also it kind of it had this um this was one of the things they actually put in the radio time because i went back and looked at the listings for it and one of the things they put in the radio times was they emphasized the point. It's like not all hauntings happen in big gothic mansions sometimes they happen in the suburbs mm. um which it creates that you know that that thing that's through the weird of like uh, coming into the living room you know this is an extension of what it was doing as a thing that it's like it's presenting a living room not unlike a large proportion of the population who might be watching it at that very time but one of the other things i got from that is the fact that there is kind of there is a sort of class dynamic to this haunting that's happening whereas you get the impression that like oh yeah hauntings happen in spooky buildings and a lot of um if we're thinking in terms of like the context of how we've thought about ghosts over the years, a lot of it does seem to be quite middle class. It's people kind of getting together in in nice kind of drawing rooms and getting a bit of getting a bit spooked for their own pleasure. But
0: this is a this is a council house. Yeah, this is a family with a single mother where they uh, the the where she's divorced, uh, raising two children. I mean, it's actually one of the most yeah. striking things watching it. Now, watching it twenty five years aren't oh, twenty five yeah. years on, bloody hell, um, is just bloody hell. A good, a nice council house. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, that's but- actually something. Re- when I watched it um, uh, again recently, not last night, but before then, it, I was really struck by, oh, you couldn't get a house like that on the council now. No, well, exactly. I mean, like uh, the, re- is- a- as ever is the case, the real monster is capitalism. Yeah, there is a though actually, uh, though right. actually,
1: well, we're gonna go into more about this when we hit the kind of like conspiratorial corner of the show, which I've got penned in later on. But basically, um, one of the things that I got from that is the fact that it's got this kind of... It's got a grittiness to it that you kind of wouldn't get in any other context other than a North London housing estate. And also, it's got... You get the impression that, like, these people are tough, you know, th- these people have probably seen some shit, and mm. uh, it was the case with the um, Enfield Poltergeist case these weren't kind of, these weren't people who really wanted this shit to happen these people were, um the, you know, I'm, I'm sounding like someone very much from Berkhamsted as I say this, but you know, it's like yeah, it's like, uh, these people don't seem like they would be f- they would be like un- untowardly flapped by something silly or ridiculous happening, this is this is, you know, um this is dark and it's dark in a way that like there's, there's not that kind of solace that you get in something like the haunting of Hill house where it's like, Oh, well at least they, you know, at least they've got a nice kind of ex- actually. <laughs> I mean, have you seen the sheets?
0: My God, the sheets. Kind yeah. Of, yeah. yeah, no, that's actually a really interesting point to make because it, and I think with the, especially with the um, the fact that that the origin of this ghost comes from the murder of children and the sexual abuse of children these are things that people from in, in you know, poor communities face more in a more direct way than people from more affluent communities mm. do, because there aren't the structures that keep people safe in the same way. There is something more, it's more real. It's more uh, uh, about that.
1: And we are also dealing with a kind of absentee dad scenario, mm. Um and it's like there's there's impl- there's implications I'm exactly, like a messy it, divorce has happened. It's point.
0: interesting as well because I've uh, actually a I've actually is a single mother because this was um was this was John Major this was John Major government this was under Major government because I remember go- growing up because uh, I was born uh, shortly uh, shortly after the broadcast very not as a result of the broadcast uh-huh. um, that <laughs> uh, uh, so growing up. Um, the single mother was
1: virtually a demonic presence the in The single worldview. mother was the uh, d- the Islamic terrorist of her day.
0: Honestly, yes. Um, uh, this is something about Ziz- uh, in uh, The Pervert's Guide to Ideology, Zizek talks about quite interestingly actually. Uh, that the single mother becomes did he a call ca- it that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he know he compared it with jaws, the shark from jaws. Oh uh, okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, but the single mother ca- uh, became a catch-all for everything that is wrong with broken Britain. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it's interesting that this is the choice that's made for. The family that uh, it's it is an it's an it's a family from a poor background of the council house uh, who uh, and with an absentee father. This is these are all things that would chime with the audience. They're very like these are signifiers for working
1: class, for it, ordinary, for like salt of the earth kind of ordinariness. It does also add this kind of uncomfortable voyeurism to the whole story. It's like we're we're kind of ha- enjoying. The spooks at their expense, at possibly at the expense of people we see as less educated than ourselves, um, being you know being spooked and having these ridiculous things happen. But then 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 you know we're tre- then then it comes back to bite us because the horror is shared. We we become part of that horror, mm. and it in fact it turns out that like the great beyond knows no class dine- knows no class dynamics whatsoever, and will and will fuck us up. At all have to dance to dance of death yes 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 but yeah basically um, if we're thinking about kind of where um, where where ghost watch features in our own um, history as a program thematically and um, where it features in the history of media generally um, there are a lot of ties that can be made to ghost to um, to the stone tape Nigel Neal's classic the stone tapes that we covered in our first episode. Uh, one of these is the fact that um, this was this. I looked. Th- okay, so um, bit of background. I looked through the historic TV listings that are on the BBC website of you like did? Halloween programming. Good um, god! And this, as far as like right, re- re- listeners, so, uh, listeners who know more about um, the dr- listeners who experienced 1992, not as a as a tiny child. Um, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but this seems to be the first time the BBC had actually um, had dedicated Halloween programming um, because up until that point, yes, the the main spooky programming section for the BBC was Christmas, um but, even that aside, because I do want to pick up on that later but, this has a huge number of connections to the stone tape um, not just because it's, you know, it's a, it's a teledrama and a kind of weird teledrama but, um there is that sense of the actual weirdness. We talked about the weirdness of um, the stone tape, um, giving that sense that here's a thing happening now, but this thing is just a kind of microcosmic trigger of a chain of events that lead back into cosmic uncertainty. And that cosmic uncertainty is the true essence of the weird. That is Azathoth residing at the core of the universe. That is the great unknown. That is Mark Fisher's black hole. And we get a sense of that very strongly from Ghostwatch, as well as the Stone Tape, in that Pipes is just a, a normal man. Well, is like is a poltergeist. It's the thing we recognise, and we give it an immediate history. Um, but then that's some that is something. He was um he was a living man who was possessed by the spirit of a murderer, and there was all these these takes of like, oh yeah, actually there might have been sites of witchcraft dating back even further. Than, um, well, if I don't say witchcraft, this, don't. like Pasco just says, this could be
0: when when she realizes that the pipes event was influenced by the mother Seddon's mm. event, she says maybe it goes back even deeper, maybe all the way back into prehistory. Okay, um, and may, that's yeah. the connection, that's the tie with, with um, the stone tape when there's this recognition of the of how far this goes back into the deep terrible time. Chain. I think
1: this is the onion skin. What is? I- I mean what happened on that spot? How many terrible things have
0: oh, this has got to be nonsense yeah, don't before sure?
1: Tunstall, before Mother Sedens, way back, maybe into prehistory. Oh, no. But the two other... Um, actually, yeah, I may have been conflating that with the Blair Witch, which there's an interesting aside with the Blair Witch Project because that is effectively the story of the Blair Witch Project, that um, a lot of the malevolence that they experience seems to be connected not to a, um, the ancient witch legend, but uh, to a serial killer who was much more recent, who, like, was, who was hanged in the 1940s, I think yeah. we said. Um, who had, and yeah. that is specifically
0: where the stuff about him... Killing a child, killing two children, and he would do it one at a time with one of them standing facing the corner comes from, which we've seen in the last scene of the film. Yeah. And he... Was driven mad by uh, contact with the Blair Witch, uh, but
1: then you get the sense that like, what was the Blair Witch driven by? How did she get her powers? You know, it goes it goes way back. And like well, the Stone I, Tape, I, it could have its origins in some sort of ancient aliens or large gloopy entity. <laughs> I think we even I even said this in the
0: Blair Witch episodes that the friends I rewatched the Blair Witch with, one of them commented that he likes to imagine the witch isn't a witch that she's something like a fucking I don't know. thousand young or something but she is um, oh. uh, but, she, but um, they call her a witch because that's the word they have for something like this but
1: everything is Azathoth
0: everything is Azathoth the discourse is real <laughs> the discourse is real everything is Azathoth right. or if not Azathoth a sothoth yes um, but yeah and it's interesting actually with um, the Blair Witch Project because uh, according to the IMDB trivia page the creators of Blair Witch say that they watched Ghost to Watch it was an influence on them However, subsequently, uh, they have said, "No, we were not aware of Ghost Watch when we made the Blair which we only saw it much later on." So, mm.
1: so make of that what you will. But mm. as, as as we mentioned though in that episode, like Eduardo Sanchez was on a fairly conscious hyperstitional trajectory even then. Um, but the other thing that, um, the other thing that's striking in terms of like how the Ghost Watch um, mythos connects to the Stone Tape is um, both in its connections to the concept of cosmic horror as Lovecraft uh, defined it and his later commentators, including Mark Fisher included, um, articulated it. Um, It's that combined with the presence of technology, which goes into a lot of kind of the hauntological dimensions that we've talked about a lot on this show. But it's the sense that... um, So the the thing that is causing the haunting it could be something profound and ancient. And as with the stone tape, that was this thing, that was an ancient presence that had stuff imprinted onto it um, and picked up things on its, on its existence, you know, through its existence. But what we see in the stone tape is, well, I think, I think when, I, when we were talking about the show, when we were talking about what the hell to actually make of pipes, um, what, I, what I found most haunting about this is the fact that when we think about traditional ghosts, when we think about the classical the, you know the classical idea of the shade you know, as we, as they appear in kind of homer and and Virgil it's the sense that they are these things that ex- it's a shade it's literally a kind of mirror imprint of as of how they existed in life and they can and they, ex- they inhabit the underworld but are no, are not able to change they're not able to develop they um they act out that either their final moves or what they did in life ad, ad infinitum, they are an echo. Um, but what we see in pipes, as we see in the stone tape, is something that isn't... Um, an active is, entity. Is, is an active entity. And it's it's active in that it's opportunistic because it, like, it sees like, oh, here's a modern world I've discovered. Here's some technology and power that I've had placed conveniently within my radius after after waiting for this god knows how long. I'm going to take advantage of it. I can see and I'm going to manifest myself and my inherent will onto this technology and bring it out into the world. But what's... I mean, that in itself is terrifying because we have that terrifying situation at the end. But also, it's terrifying because it's effectively pipes you know the man who was pipes isn't just dead he's not dead he is the living dead because he's um he's like basically he's like a kind of corpse puppet because even though this thing is possessed of a will of its own it's using pipes and his inherent grimy mind and his like fermented activity and his his kind of horrific impulses As the filter through which it decides to exhibit its will So it's both a living entity Tainted by a very, very gross dead thing indeed And um, and that's why, like, this thing has taken over It's powerful But its concerns are still recognisably and malignantly human And so that's why I find that line where Parkinson comes towards the camera talking about fucking teddy bears to be the most disgust... <laughs> There's a dog outside. Uh, to, to kind of, it's both haunting and disgusting. And it's, it's kind of, we're gonna, oh jeez, And we're gonna talk about this a great deal. Um, but basically that is, that is where the kind of fundamental weirdness comes in. What? what, what? We'll look at the picture. Where? On the wall, the picture on the wall. What, what about the picture? Well, on the it's wall? still there. It hasn't fallen. It, it, it's not come off the wall. This picture we're seeing now isn't live. This is some earlier footage from earlier in the evening. This is just a cover. It's a dupe.
0: But but, but This what, isn't
1: happening now. But what is? <laughs> But this, these aren't new ideas, um, because these, this connection to technology and this weird kind of manifestation is something that has been known to kind of poltergeist lore for quite some time. And I believe, Sean, you had some, you have some observations about that.
0: Yeah, so i got to talk to you about ghosts for a while. Um,
1: not hauntology, nothing, inter-
0: nothing like fancy or good. Later, sweet ones. Later. Uh, okay, so electronic voice phenomena. Oh, but it is good. It's, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, electronic voice phenomena. Uh, so, this is something that has, um, as, because a lot of the, sp- the specific tropes that we associate with hauntings and with ghost lore are relatively recent in the sense i mean there's always been stories about ghosts but there's something like but like a lot of the specific stuff that we have about what a haunting is and how we interact with ghosts and so on they're all stuff that's developed in the last 150 or so years it is historically a recent phenomena and or phenomenon rather ah.
1: Uh, ah. and, and adjacent the- phenomena
0: and so on, yes. A phenomenon, and a necessarily some phenomena. Anyway. At so, uh, But one of, the more recent, one of the more recent manifestations of ghost lore is electronic voice phenomena. So this is the supposed ability of disembodied spirits to communicate through audio devices. And typically how this will work, you will hear um, will be people leaving a tape recorder a lo- in an empty room, they'll just set it off recording and leave. They'll let it play itself out, or yeah. So the tape is entirely filled up with recordings. Then play it back, and they claim that if you listen to this tape, you'll be able to hear the voices of the dead. Mm. And uh, well, you can't because it's not true. But uh, what is inter- but um, what's interesting here is the way that uh, a modern, an entirely modern, a very very recent technological artifact has become imbued with a supernatural potential through this mm. this it kind of likes and this is kind of something that we start seeing in, uh, this is something we see in Ghostwatch this notion that the technological has opened up an avenue for the supernatural, that Mm. uh, the scientific has not banished the ghosts from the world, it's just given them a new way they can express themselves and there have been attempts by um, some uh, parapsychologists and assorted supernaturalists to uh, use technology in a more um, reactive way there was a guy called uh, William O'Neill who claimed Claimed that he met a ghost of a dead scientist called George Mueller and the ghost of George Mueller told him that he was going to teach him how to build a device called the Spiricom which would oh. allow him to communicate with the dead as a kind of death telephone if you will and um cool indeed and uh it didn't work, and uh, despite the fact that uh, William O'Neill claimed that it did and said that no, I've spoken to so many ghosts with my Spiricom You can get like the plans for it and build one. It won't work. And indeed, his, bus- his business partner says this is because O'Neill was in fact a medium himself,
1: and uh, it needs a living medium to complete the circuit or something. Yeah, uh, and at- just just this this um, slight tangent here, but this reminds me of something. If we're thinking about. Um, the concept of where hyperstition figures into this. And uh, specifically where we talked about um, <coughs> Richard Dawkins in our Blair Witch episode in context of hyperstition. I think this was before he became a complete asshole. Uh, but one of the interesting things he does talk about in um, when he's trying to convey the concept of memetics is where he talks about there's a novel... He uses as, uh, he uses the plot of this novel to articulate his idea of how these memetics worked and his concept of the selfish gene operated and it's called A is for Andromeda and it's basically about um, it's about uh, some humans receiving signals from the beyond so from the great depths of outer space.
0: Yeah there's actually there's a um, there's a BBC there's a BBC drama from the 50s I think where they adapted A for Andromeda ah, yeah yeah well, and then, yeah it's a, um, a ra- uh, the aliens arrive in the form of a radio signal
1: yeah. Um, but what is interesting about this Is the fact that it turns out The thing that it's doing Is trying to instruct them how to build something But then that thing that there's In technology they can't comprehend But when they put it together using this kind of Inherited technology that's come through the signals Is in fact some sort of doomsday device And they've damned themselves um, that, is, that is effectively Kind of how, how memetics Or indeed genetics work It's the, it's the um, dis- dispersal of will through an adoption of the available materials and the available resources, be they uh, human sentient resources or material resources.
0: But this being said, the supposed ghost telephones are not very impressive. Yeah. Um, There's (laughs) another one that was developed... after Ghost Box, after Ghost Watch, actually, is called the Ghost Box or the Frank Box, yeah, which was developed by a guy called Frank uh, Frank Sumption. and it's literally just a broken radio. <laughs> yeah, it's just a radio that constantly tunes back and forth, and uh, that that's uh,
1: that's it. Although that's in- that's interesting. There's actually a good Skeptoid episode about that, uh, which we'll naturally link out to in the notes. But um, one of the things they mention is the fact that one well. One of the things they cover, Brian Dunning uh, covers, is the fact that he wasn't a crook. This guy had a genuine belief and he never made a penny out of his invention and never tried to exploit people. This is um, something his you daughter can, has said in his defence. Yeah, You can download the plans for a ghost box. Yeah, there's like yeah. a free access PDF somewhere, most likely.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, and um, I got most of this information from uh, Colin Wilson's book Poltergeist, mm. which is Truly breathtakingly bad. Um.
1: We, um, but that's the thing, Colin Wilson. <laughs> this is the
0: case with everything Colin Wilson did. We're
1: um, we're planning at some point to devote an entire episode to dunking on Colin Wilson.
0: I feel bad about this because I know that these some of our listeners like Colin Wilson. I'm sure just, I like
1: Colin Wilson. That's the thing. I'm. I love some of his stuff. I I love what he does, but there are things that are so flawed and that's the thing he was possessed of a singular arrogance which kind of he lived up to in that he bore out some of his ideas that he was arrogant about but at the same time uh, this this both kind of elevated and damned him but i want to that's for another time i really but wanna...
0: yes um yeah his book poltergeist is just an exceptionally credulous investigation about these things and i found that very bothersome because I am interested in the super that I'm interested yeah. in people who think that who claim to have had these experiences. I don't think we I, I I find them really interesting. I want to know more about them, but I don't but these approaches to it which are just so absolutely like belligerently credulous that they will just accept absolutely everything they just really bother me because that's not the way to approach like an interesting, serious question like this.
1: I mean, I think, I guess the best way to go about this is to take uh, Charles Fort as your guide rather than... Well, that's the thing. Charles Fort didn't always practice what he preached in this respect because his whole idea was like, let's look at these things. This is this data on its own merits. Isn't this interesting? What can be construed from this data on its own terms? Um, But then he just kept going. Um, (laughs) Yeah. We'll bring that into the um, Colin Wilson episode as well. Yes, but uh, yeah. anyway, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the actual. I want to talk a bit
0: about the actual taxonomy of the poltergeist. Almost, yeah. can and I what, just
1: talk a little bit about um, kind of one other point about the ghost box? Yes, um, which is that okay. One other point about the ghost watch, which is a ghost box, that's kind of interesting, is that um, when it came out, it's sort of. When it when it became a thing, it seemed to combine a couple of things. So it combined a very kind of scientific, parapsychological approach to uh, hauntings and identifying with spirits, but then fused it with a kind of nascent New aginess about it. In that, it conveyed this information up until a point. It said that you know these are signals that you're definitely receiving from the beyond, but it has this convenient, um, useful plea bargain element to it. In that, like the messages will only ever say one thing to one person and you have to take their word from it otherwise. So that, that it, it combines a psycho-spiritual thing with a scientific thing while kind of conflating these concepts and drawing on their mutual weight in ways that may be considered problematic. Um, but definitely, you know, but it gave us, you know, it's given us so much. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we? We owe a great deal to Mr. Consumption. Assumption.
0: Righto. But yeah. Let's get one. Let's build a ghost box, Lucy. We're going to do this. This gonna is going to get be... one and we're going to... Next Halloween. Next Halloween. Uh oh, oh my God, we definitely should. We mm. definitely should get one and just release as an episode recordings from it.
1: Oh yeah. I and mean, that was a full episode. We we're going to take the piss. Bonus spec- content. Bonus content just an hour of static. Oh, uh, let's get let's combine it with some harsh noise. Yeah. But what about these um so there's a kind of there's a functioning taxonomy to these poltergeists. Yes,
0: there's a functioning taxonomy to these poltergeists. Thank you for the lead-in, Lucy. Mm. The uh, I emailed the Society for Psychical Research to ask if they have, like, a specific criteria they use when they investigate poltergeist hauntings to see, like, is this a poltergeist or is this something else? And disappointingly, they just sent, gave me a link to uh, basically
1: ghost Wikipedia. I mean, uh, they must get so many of these emails. This is true, but I, I,
0: <laughs> I thought they would at least, like, I, thought they were, I assumed they would at least have a PDF of, a, like, a... Ch- like a tick list or something, a checklist that they uh, that they tick off when they go investigate these things. We said no, we have no formal corporate views on this matter whatsoever. So oh, fine. Uh-huh. Um, so this is kind of po- uh, so this is cobbled together from uh, that article on a uh, cyber... Clopedia, I think it's called. We'll put a link to the thing, oh, link yeah. to the thing, link to the thing, um, and also the Colin Wilson book and so on. So poltergeists, what's ma- what makes a poltergeist different from other kinds of haunting? Uh, so your commonal garden haunting is usually uh, a persistent phenomenon. So like a haunted house has always been haunted. Mm. Like uh, and you'll find reports of the haunting going back hundreds of years, and it's always the same sp- spooky lady or sad boy, and it's always very always variations thereof And the uh, but the whole the idea is that this is something that's really embedded itself almost in that place. This is so it's always the same thing happening at the same time. It's been happening for hundreds of years. The polar guys, however, that's how I understand it. Uh, Poltergeist phenomena tend to follow a bell curve shape instead that they first there's nothing then there's something then there's lots of the things and a few of the things then there aren't any things again Mm. um so that's the kind of thing that you tend to see with Poltergeist activity and um The theory you've probably heard of when it comes to poltergeists is that it's not a ghost. It's actually like the psychokinetic energy being generated by a child, typically a girl going through puberty. Uh, The poltergeist uh, is actually kind of a psychokinetic acting out almost. It's the release of psychic energy that the child can't control. Uh, Colin Wilson, however, he does advance uh, an interesting and quite spooky alternative um, interpretation. Which... I mean, he is
1: good. <laughs> anyway, he
0: the, the the suggestion that he advances is that uh, what the poltergeist actually is, because this is the thing with poltergeist activity, is that it always tends to be centered around a particular person mm. more than anything else. Not always, but a, but a traditional haunting is just this event that's going on, go, while a poltergeist is more interactive and personal and often fixated on a particular individual. Uh, and he suggests that poltergeists are actually spiritual phenomena they are an entity which is not living, which is disembodied or immaterial but the reason it appears to be centered on a particular person is, is that it is deriving fuel from them, almost, that they're people who are psychically potent, like typically young people or neurotic people or disturbed people who have a lot of pent up psychic energy which they're exuding, and so the entity latches onto them and extracts fuel from them And it's interesting viewing Ghostwatch with this theory in mind because if we follow on from the thesis we've already advanced that the entity, it's not Mother Seddon's, it's not actually this guy who comes in his pipes, something far older, far more mysterious, far more ancient. But maybe these people who have inhabited this place, like the child murderer Mother Seddon's, like the uh, child molester pipes and so on, this is the fuel it's been getting, and this is almost like perhaps it's homeopathically almost taken on. It's the characteristics of these people. It's become malevolent. The kind of like a, a psychic feedback loop, almost of sort of reinforcing negativity by drawing negative people to it, from which it derives further negativity, or possibly this kind of. Um, disturbed violent mind is just a really potent source
1: of energy for it from which it's deriving its fuel still it's like we were talking about with the shining the idea of the flashpoint something happened in 1921 which is resonating both backwards and forwards Mm. um yeah the
0: uh and some if you just want some of the some raw hard facts about poltergeists uh, a study carried out by alan gould and tony cornell in the 70s i believe uh well the book they published was released in the 70s probably derived from early research material uh examine different phenomena that tends to occur in poltergeist cases and these are all things that we see in ghost like they've done their research they have a credited psychic consultant in the credits which amuses me hmm. and uh the most and in descending order beginning with the most common phenomena you get Movement of small objects in 64% of cases. Rapping noises in 48%. Large object movements, for example, chairs and tables in 36% of cases. Uh, the... Lucy moving her chair there. Uh, the appearance of, hu- of a human phantasm in 29% of cases. And the presence of a voice or groaning sound
1: no.
0: in 36% of cases. So the... Th- you get the impression from them that they have they've done the reading. Stephen Falk knows what he's talking about, and he's and this is like I said, he is drawing a lot of this from the case of the Enfield poltergeist. So, um, lots of bits of spoopy lore are happening here, and that's, this is the thing we I mean the thing with Ghost Watch is the same thing with the Blair Witch Project for me. In that the Blair Witch Project, as far as I'm concerned, is what it would actually be like if a witch was chasing people down and carving them up into little bits in the woods. This is what it would look like. Ghostwatch, as what it would look like, if you found, beyond all doubt, a house inhabited by the ghost of a child molester, and broadcast it to the world. This is what it would look like, and that, that, and that is where so much of its power, as a piece of horror fiction, is derived from. Is that realism? Is that naturalness? And that's a realism which I think, for you and I, for people of our sort of like our, our generation, mm. is perhaps something that we will never quite get from it because. The people in it, like Parkey and Craig Charles, and all that—the people we know about, but we don't know about them—in the same way that they're not real presences in our lives. In the same way that um, the uh, tired man on Radio Six in the morning, his name is Sean. Actually, uh, is the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean Kirk- Kearney, I think his name is.
1: Oh wait, yeah, him.
0: Yeah, him. Or. Kievaney, Kievaney, that's it. Or your inserted other celebrity human Iggy Pop, Iggy Pop.
1: No, no, he's, he's on the radio. He's, he's he that- is on the radio.
0: He- Ed, the point yeah. being, the
1: point being, aside from the fact that um, hardware is now a documentary, <laughs>
0: <laughs> the point being that this is where so much of it, so much of its energy comes from, is that re- Is that centeredness in that particular? place and time which we which is which is lost which it kind of almost adds to the hauntological aspect of it so like Sarah Green is not a relevant media personality really now or uh, Parkinson barely is and uh, Craig Charles is um, is the guy from Red, Red Dwarf that he also he has is. a
1: very entertaining funk and soul show on Radio 6 and plays some fucking sick DJ sets. well there you go listener uh, we were not paid for this, um, <laughs> uh, for this endorsement <laughs> um, Craig Charles come on the show <laughs> What if what if, however, we change tack? Because this has been a weird episode. There's been a kind of undercurrent of weird in this, and that's the sense that there is a um there is a ancient presence to the uh goes to Ghost to Watch 2 uh pipes. What if we go into the hypostition route in that the power of the entity that comes out through pipes isn't something that's been elevated from a brooding, ancient potency that's laying dormant? What if the potency is all modern? What if everything that is there that is there in the past is in fact the past and is dead? And what we're dealing with is a entity of mass-accumulated consciousness through electronic media that has taken on a sentience of its own that has adopted all these things to define itself. And we, you know, Pipes is dead. Um, the lady is dead, the witch is dead, um, but it's gi- it's taking this life and using that as a convenient patsy and it's not a digital seance, it's not a media seance, the media, the medium is the message, the medium is this active living thing that we're all feeding into and we're investing it with all this power and it's taken on a literal force that is tainted uh, conveniently by an evil thing as an excuse to um as an excuse to do evil to define its own primordial evil that is present in all of us. What if what if it's not a ghost at all? What if it's um if it's the coming basilisk of the media in its earliest stages of sentience? Well there you go.
0: Uh, well
1: I mean this is
0: yeah. I'm not really sure what to say to that. Um but I will actually bring up um Stephen Falk wrote a Short story which you can get for free off his website as a PDF. That's stephenfog.net called Thirty One Ten, which is a sequel to Ghost it's About twelve pages long, doesn't take long to read, and um, in which it's a curious take that I like approach he has to it, which it's it's a return to Studio One where Ghost Watch was was not actually filmed, but where it's meant to have been filmed from in the narrative essentially mm. and it's been sealed ever since and like and he mentions offhandedly that um everyone knows that Sarah green is missing everyone mm. knows that the woman who appeared on Blue Peter the next day to say that I'm fine was not Sarah Green. It was a body double. Oh. Uh, and everyone knows that you can't mention Ghostwatch around Michael Parkinson and we will lose his shit. And he's invited by his producer, the actual producer, Leslie Manning, um, the director, rather, to do a Ghostwatch follow-up 10 years on. And he says he's not have not spoken to her like he hadn't spoken to her ever since the Ghostwatch debacle, basically. And so he... I'm not going to talk about what actually happens in this story because it's really fun and you should just read it. Um, But one of the things that... What he does with it, though, is he does combine elements of the lore contained solely within Ghostwatch with what happens outside of it. Like, he kind of implies that we accidentally made this thing real. He says that Pipes was an actor. Mm. His name is Keith. And he... Becomes something because of what we did with him, almost that we oh. kind of channeled this energy through our story, and it becomes real, as indeed it did. That's so ultimately. Cool. There's um, actually there's one angle that um, we I'm surprised we didn't pick up on in our planning, and I would, and it's actually only it just occurred to me, which I'd like to bring up, is it does play into the rather unfortunate trope of cross-dressing being a signifier of perversion and mental illness and instability.
1: It's a Buffalo Bill, essentially. It's a
0: Buffalo, it is. And like um, the little girl, uh, not Susie, the other little girl, his name escapes me, actually, mm. says that he is wearing Mother Seddon's clothes in spectral form. Because oh. he's wearing much, much older clothes. Because I think he, meant to, he was meant to have died in the 60s or the 70s. Yeah. And he's wearing something which is very anachronistic uh, for when he comes from, and he's kind of like he is a composite entity of himself and Mother Seddon's. But there is that uncomfortable suggestion that the man, in, like we know, he's insane. We know he's a threat to children because he's a man in women's clothes. Yeah, which is has a which is bad, which yeah. is a bad thing to have had in this thing. Uh, I think. I mean, it took me several watches to pick up that that was a. Uh, that is an an element of the symbolism here given uh, that like I don't think like yeah. i don't, I don't think he's got like... He's, I don't think because a narr- has like an agenda here mm-hmm. uh, but I think it is it is uncomfortable there's an uncomfortable sign that when it comes from that this is a very very easy signifier
1: that it can have yeah especially given the period it came out of the fact that this, the 1980s have just happened and even the very mainstream missed most mainstream bits of the media were extremely homophobic. Like, they hadn't even figured out transphobia yet. Hmm. Um, They were just like... And this was a year after... I just checked, this was a year after Silence of the Lambs. So that can Uh, be there. That that could definitely be there. But I think, like... I think the Times was still running articles with titles like Top of the Puffs. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Which which does date it somewhat. Um, But... Yeah, both um, just
0: some things that day- date it. It's just a bit which it's not funny, but it's kind of like just struck me as almost kind of weirdly funny. Where she just the mother just offhandly mentions that when when the ghost is first brought up, she says, and I thought they were just acting out. So I was about to smack them both. so Oh bloody hell! <laughs> 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 no comments on this. Yeah. It's like, oh
1: yeah, yeah. Oh yeah,
0: so I was going to beat them both as is proper. Good yeah, thing you yeah. did, because you'd have been completely justified in doing so. <laughs> yeah. uh, the past was uh, history. Times were a bad time for the all past involved. Was Terrible. <laughs> um, where are we? Yeah, so that's a bad thing, but it's an interesting thing. Mm. So I actually have uh, a ghost story, a ghost story to share here. Uh, well, it's not my own ghost story, as is all, as is proper. I think, as it, as is always the should be the case of a ghost story. This is a friend's ghost story. This is something that's happened to someone I know. Mm. So, uh, my friend Andrew in Norwich is in a poly poly relationship with uh, two other guys called uh, James and Eduardo. Yeah, which is a brilliant name. And um, Eduardo lives in Great Yarmouth and. When I went, to, because we both met in Norwich, we both went to UEA, Mm. uh, Lucy and I. And I went up to Norwich for the first time in a couple of years in January to meet some old friends again. And I saw Andrew and I hadn't seen him for about two years. So we caught up a little bit. And he mentioned that uh, he has become convinced that Eduardo's flat is haunted. And this really, really surprised me because Andrew is a... Sceptical materialist atheist and he's not the kind of person you would Think would come to believe his boyfriend's house is haunted basically this being said full disclosure uh, I know him because we both really like horror movies and Talking about things like that so you could argue that he's primed to interpret things in that way I suppose you could say that but yeah That's how I know him and these are the beliefs that he possessed going into this so I don't know it's anyway mm. so he described to me some of the phenomena that they had he'd encountered at the, at a Eduardo's flat and it's all quite uh, interestingly typical like ghost stuff like mm. voices and other sounds coming from empty rooms or from empty spaces which are unoccupied um, the bed shaking when like they're both trying to hold it down and it's still moving. And this is really weird. Pictures, like the paintings on the wall, shifting position overnight. And they come downstairs in the morning and find that things aren't where they had been in the morning.
1: Oh, fuck.
0: Yeah. And he also said they'd looked a little into the history of the flat and found that it had originally been uh, a surgery, a, a GP surgery and the GP in question had been struck off for performing unnecessary procedures on children. Yikes. Yikes. Uh, and so when we had decided, Lucy and I, that we were going to do Ghost Watch, I remembered Andrew telling me all this in January. And I thought, oh, that could be a fun thing yeah, to bring definitely
1: up. definitely ask permission. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> so I sent him a message and said, oh, hey, can I tell that story? And he not only said yes, he said Got it's gotten a hell of a lot weirder over summer, actually. Oh shit! Yeah. So uh, what I'm going to read out are the messages that he sent me about this, and uh, I've edited I've edited them very very slightly so that they flow a bit more. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is what this is for all intents and purposes unexpurgated. This is what he told me. It began with lights turning themselves on and off. This would only happen at first when I was out of the room and James assumed I was playing some kind of trick on him. I assumed that James was messing around with me. Then I happened to catch the lamp in Eduardo's room turning itself on and off when I was in the ensuite bathroom. I saw it in the mirror reflected, so technically I wasn't in the room with it. After this, it would just happen when I was in the room anyway, like the presence didn't care any longer if I was there. James then started asking it questions with a two flashes for yes, three for no system it would often respond but not every time and its responses seemed intelligent next was james's shoes would be moved he would leave them downstairs in the flat and when he moved and when he went down again they had moved always to the same area on the of the floor when they and they would be stacked on top of the of each other one shoe placed vertically in the other his keys then started to move too, and would always be found in the exact same area of the downstairs floor. Eduardo's carpet is in a grid style, so we could tell the exact position, and it was always that exact same spot. The next was possibly the weirdest, as it happened right in front of us. We had ordered Chinese food, and I'd arranged a table ready with a fork and a spoon, for, and with a fork each and a spoon for serving. James sat down and went to reach for his fork and it had gone. We searched the floor and table but couldn't find it anywhere, so I got him a new one. We started eating and suddenly his original fork was back on the table in the original position. It was literally like flicking a switch. One minute not there, the next it was there. It appeared in front of us, from nowhere. It's hard to explain it. It wasn't there and the next second it was. It was really undramatic, if that makes sense. It was just there. A few other events we witnessed. Our flatmate Francesco came down with us and has a compass on the key ring. And as an experiment, he put it on the table and James asked questions. And the compass started spinning in response. Also, I saw a vaguely humanoid shadow in the hallway. It was moving very strangely, almost juddering like a moving object caught in a strobe. And moved down the corridor. Oh, yeah uh, I sent him another message uh, earlier this week uh, asking what was what did it feel like? Did it feel threatening at all? And he said, no, it didn't. He said that the presence felt almost like he said James described it as feeling like a like a child, like it was something mischievous, that it wasn't threatening at all, that it was having fun with them, but not in a way that it wanted to harm them. Ah. And he said that the um, the frequency has dipped down and so you could and so it's poss- so it does feel you know that it is following that bell curve of mm. initial of that ramping up of activity going up to high activity, ramping back down again. And he says that it tends to be centered around James that happens most when he's there as well. and uh, yeah.
1: It's interesting because also if we're thinking about ghosts and haunting in the context of um, both national trauma and... Well, if we're thinking about ghosts and haunting in terms of social deprivation and grimness of environment, the fact that this was happening in Great Yarmouth uh, will tell a great deal because this is is probably something uh, unfamiliar to our American listeners and indeed many of our UK listeners that... Great Yarmouth is a really both grim and bizarre place.
0: It's a very. I've only been to Great Yarmouth once, and it was with. uh, When I stayed with James and Andy a few years ago, Uh, we went to. We went. uh, Because Andrew is originally from Great Yarmouth.
1: Mm. And we just went there on a day trip, basically, on the bus, and just had to look around. It's a very odd place. It's extremely haunted. It's one of those things that was like had some sort of vague period of. of uh, kind of uh, promise as a a seaside resort that was uh, snatched uh, very quickly away from it. And so it's got these slightly kind of weird 1920s ornate buildings just in amidst complete horror and tat and weird shit and it's got a nice...
0: The tat is so striking um, and it's absolutely fascinating because there's a pleasure beach there mm. and walking through it you get, it is just a, like a leap back in time to very early 2000s, late 90s aesthetics with, with the fairground rides all that kind of like garish neon airbrush style kind of like paintings on them there's mm. off-brand, uh, obviously uh, completely are all thrice simpsons art <laughs> and stuff They're- and you have also in the sl- in the distance you have the giant mechanical cranes lifting the sh- like the the cargo off of the
1: ships there's this like weird fake hill which is part of a ride which is this like un- like unnaturally like bulbous hill that you can just see from anywhere in town it's just this uncanny green shape on the horizon that you know visible from all directions let's go to great yarmouth let's go to great yarmouth let's do another (laughs) let's do a let's do a thing um but also also i mean like they they don't help themselves i mean they 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 had they had a statue there was a work of public art which was just a kind of weird mannequin of like what in the 2000s, one might accurately have described as a chav vomiting kind of green slime into a bin, and this was just on literally the high street. Um, there's a lot of places where you can buy a lot of um, pewter wizards and dragons and shirts with those three—you know, the three wolf shirt there was like a meme in <laughs> about two. Wolf that, shirt. Yeah, yes, <laughs> there's a meme in about 2009. But you can you can still get that there, like completely unironically, buy it from a person. But I think it was always sunny in Philadelphia that started that. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Oh no, no, this is. Like long predates always so sunny. Is it? Oh, because yeah. like
0: because Mac wears that. I wasn't sure if that was a reference to it or okay, if that no. originated. No, in.
1: that was that was a meme because I think the Amazon review was like this shirt changed my life. I get laid all the time. <laughs> um, but also, it's kind of it's sort of where East Anglia just sticks all its people who have it's- either just come out of prison or out of um service it's a
0: very very deprived area it is used as a
1: just like an effective a, human dumping ground. it's awful
0: because like I was one of because I remember when um, when we, when I was studying in Norwich it was the Norwich was declared an EU <laughs> remember that an EU city of culture that year and it was pointed <laughs> out that like an hour away on the bus from Norwich is Great Yarmouth, which has the lowest adult literacy rate in Europe. Yeah, it's a very, very deprived area. It's absolutely disgusting that such a place has been allowed to exist. I mean, I mean, not like yeah, as, as such, like, not as, as, as in, such. I mean, it's such a state of <laughs> deprivation. Yeah. In with what lack we've of done to
1: it, what, what kind of like. New labor, like having such a good time being mindful, has ignored what the Tories, through their authority have um completely deprived even further it's 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 disgusting and you know and the fact that a ghost could happen there makes it a whole lot more real to me at least and this going back to going back to ghost watch um there is a very definite um i talked earlier about the kind of the grittiness of the environment, the fact that it's like you're, you're showing social deprivation alongside supernatural entities and these sort of combine in the popular imagination to form something quite off um, I think I think there is certainly a large kind of class message to be construed from ghost watch not least of which is the fact that um, the the ghost pipes is um, very much a, um, a I would see as kind of to su- Harboring some sort of inherent condemnation of the Thatcherite policy on uh, the care services, uh, specifically closing down the asylums in favor, or you know, the um, mental the, the mental health institutions in favor of care in the community, which basically resulted in loads and loads of um, very mental homeless people just being shoveled out with nowhere to go, mm. and it was it's appalling, and effectively the killer in this is. Um, is one of these people I know this happened In the 60s In the context of this But this would have been Very much at the forefront Of the public imagination yeah, cause, When cause, it happened because yeah, the
0: line From the person who rings in Says that he was This guy, social worker And he says that He should never have been Allowed out He should he, he was an extremely Dangerous person He was an extremely Ill person Who was a threat To anyone To everyone around him And Even from beyond the grave Indeed mm. we find out Um and, it's, and it is worth mentioning here. I think this is probably the best like um, leap we can make to it. Part of the... Because le- we do need to talk about um, some of the darker elements of the legacy of uh, Ghostwatch.
1: The great uh, national trauma that was Ghostwatch.
0: And the fact that uh, uh, a guy called Martin Denham, he was 18 years old. He had uh, severe learning difficulties. Um, he saw this with his family and became so... Uh, and... I could be t- it's difficult to know how quite to talk about this in the right way because we're talking about a very real trauma that our family suffered from and I certainly don't want to accuse him of having an agenda because of the loss they suffered but the story that has developed around him is that he was so f- frightened by Ghostwatch he committed suicide mm. that's the story that's been told I'm not in- I'm not accusing anybody of being dishonest I'm not saying that the family have been dishonest or anything like that but um, what appears to have happened is that um, if nothing else this contributed to his pre-existing mental health problems which and again I'm not blaming blame on anyone's door here did not he did obviously did not receive the help that he needed because suicide never has just one cause you can't claim that a TV show frightens someone to suicide uh you, you can't make that claim. It's not a credible claim. You can however say that someone who is already profoundly unwell and needed help which he was not receiving, and again through no one's no, not laying that blame on anyone's door, um this did probably contribute to an instability which was already there. Mm.
1: And uh, I think to I think it was one that hadn't really been picked up on before that point.
0: His family said that in many ways he although he was the word that would have been used is he was slow. He mm. was... Uh, they, but he said that he did have a job. Mm. Uh, he had a girlfriend. He was just... He took his time picking things up, is how you would put the, it. And also, and also just
1: and, these things can affect you. You know, they can they can get you in ways that it's difficult to put into words. And because
0: uh, problematically we described as having the mental age of a 13 year old and I'm fairly certain mental age is bullshit but um, he was someone that clip but he was not a well person obviously he did have issues which he was not receiving all the support he ought to have been receiving for them from an objective standpoint and part of the grim testament to the potency of this piece of media is that somehow it is that it does seem pretty beyond doubt in some way it did
1: contribute
0: to his uh to his
1: suicide mm-hmm. as in i think it's a fairly i mean this is both a a positive judgment of their artistic capacity but also a um a fairly accurate condemnation of the filmmakers lack of judgment in the wider context that uh, one of the thing, one of the phrases that came out of the in uh, investigation into this, is this from was the, this
0: is from the British uh, the Broadcasting Standards Commission. said Was this. that
1: it? It contained a very deliberate um, effort to create an air of menace. Yes, I think, it said the quote. Yes, the the ruling from the BSC because they. I'm
0: um, just. I just. I gotta do something I hate on podcasts. I'm just gonna quote from Wikipedia. Do it. <laughs> um, he because this guy. Um, the, it says here the British, Broadca- the British the, the Broadcasting Standards Commission refused uh, the complaint that they had uh, that had been brought um, against them uh, mm. because of this. They said that it's beyond our remit to make a judgment about this. Uh, but the High Court granted the Denham's permission for a judicial review requiring, requiring the BSC to hear their complaint and in its ruling the BSC stated that, quote, the BBC had a duty to do more than simply hint of a deception it was practising on the audience. In Ghostwatch, there was a deliberate attempt to cultivate a sense of menace. Mm. Uh, They ruled that the programme was excessively distressing and graphic, referring to the scratches on the children and the reference to mutilated animals. And they concluded that it had aired too soon after the 9pm watershed. Mm. They further stated that the presence in the programme of presenters familiar from children's programmes took some parents off guard in deciding whether their children could uh, continue to view. And... This is like as we've said before that um, already in this episode that there was an article in the Radio Times emphasizing that this wasn't real that this was fake this was a story that was being told. Um, But you can't you yeah you it begins with a the intro for the BBC's drama slot at the time. It's all of these things be taken into account. This does actually raise curiously pertinent questions about the power that the media does have to manipulate one's sense of reality mm. uh because it's and um, because you know we, we live in the in the in the epoch of fake yeah, news this is a very um,
1: useful thing to think about in terms of fake in terms of fake news and in, in terms of the actual power that broadcasting has even aside from art um that, you know, it's it's got this sense of like we can we we now live in a time where we can put information out into the world. And even though it, even if it's completely discreditable, it will be literally and operatively real and functionally real for a number of hours in which time anything could happen if the need presents itself. Um, and I mean, this this kind of this is interesting because it calls it. This is something that we were kind of, like, talking about with, I I guess, a degree of speculativeness equal to the degree of speculativeness, as I described earlier in the episode, um, Halloween as a um, non-entity (laughs) hyper-holiday. In the sense that it's, like, it's, what we're seeing with the media is there's, well, what we're seeing here is a broadcast... And a very um, potent cognitive experiment, even if it wasn't intended as such. Uh, it's demonstrating the limits to which um, media can be stressed. And it's just important. I, I'm not going to present a conclusion here because I think there's a lot to be drawn from this that we don't even necessarily know about at this stage. but um a conclusion to be uh, a suggestion here that like, basically, this was aired in nineteen ninety two this is media at the end of history we are getting to a period of time when um, if we're just thinking about you know there were all these there was all this mechanism for studying kind of like what it did what it what it was able to do what it should have been doing um, and called into all these questions like what does the BB because this was the BBC um, which is kind of this has gone back and forth over time, but is effectively a mouthpiece of the state, um, perhaps more so now than it was then, but still, it's still present there. The, um, the
0: BBC carries with it, um, especially for the benefit of our American audience, uh, and the, the BBC does carry with it a certain... Air of authority. If you yeah. hear it from the BBC, that kind of means it's more real somehow. But if it's from ITV, or...
1: it's got something like um, it's got it's got its three laws, which are kind of comparable in scope to the three laws of robotics of Isaac Asimov. Which it <laughs> must um, it must inform, educate, and entertain. And enterca- entertain comes last. Um, but, pro
0: like we could do, uh, we could, and indeed, maybe we should do an entire history about the uh, a, a materialist analysis of the BBC. Yeah. But uh, entertain certainly comes before
1: all of the other things now, which is why BBC is trash these days. Yeah, to, to, um, to terrify, discombobulate, misinform, <laughs> um, misinform, disinform, um, de inform, de educate, re educate. These are all functions that the BBC. Performs um, under the guise of a hyper bland mundanity, which is frankly terrifying. And we are a foil in. (laughs) uh, We're we'll defeat the BBC with the intercessionary
0: prayers of St. Clair, patron of telecommunications. Mm -hmm. We will slave a demon, we will
1: exercise it. And
0: from whence cometh communism?
1: Yeah, I mean, just to get our conspiracy hats on wedged ever tighter here i mean like what is it trying to do what is what is this an experimental ground for because like the nuclear terror for this period of time was effectively over um we're not necessarily defeating ideological opponents anymore um or even literal opponents um we're we're essentially fighting ghosts and um you know what is this what is this showing us Is, is the power to um create something that creates a very literal entity out of something we've explicitly said isn't an entity and seeing how far we can get with this what are they up to how far are they willing to take this um and i think we've not i think in terms of um the actual history of the bbc from this point onwards i think that was kind of a failed experiment i think they've got a lot more insidious in terms of how they achieve their goal by creating this incredibly nuanced ambiguity about what their actual role function and intention is and I think this is going to be a very interesting thing to watch, how it manifests over the coming years. Um, but that aside, solid piece of television. Oh, yes. Yeah, great
0: telly. You should watch it if you've not. Yeah, it's all on YouTube. Which we hope you have.
1: Uh, it's all on YouTube. You can buy a DVD
0: for like five pence and um, it's really good and you should watch it. Um, there's a documentary called Ghost Watch Behind the Curtain, mm. which I could not find and could not watch before recording this. And I was very cross about this. Uh, it's out of print on DVD. You can't get it for less than 30 quid, and I wasn't going to spend that on the DVD. Buy it's some not T-shirts. Even avail- it's not... <laughs> <laughs> help us help you. Um, it's not even available to for streaming that I could find. I sent them a message, and they said that they are going to do more copies of it. Just, I don't know, God knows when. Um, yeah, so this has, been a, this has been a hell of a weird one, hasn't it, Lucy? And this is going to drop on Halloween. This is. I think this is us at our most real... Luce, so in conclusion, ghosts are more real than anything
1: else, including capitalism. The discourse is real, the praxis is strong. This is weird and keep it signal. Good night. Good night.